from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, this this was a an historic week in the American presidential. Uh, it's, it's too too long to call it a campaign. It's it's a, it's a war, really. It's gone on almost as long. Well, our wars are getting longer too, but um, it was an historic week. It was the week the fiddle rebelled. Donald J. Trump has been playing the New York-based media, and more recently the Washington-based media, like a finely tuned Stradivarius for only since the mid-1980s. And this week, late this past week, Friday afternoon, finally, the fiddle rebelled. We'll look for further developments as they occur. I'm speaking to you from London, and... A noteworthy fact about my commute to this uh, broadcast facility, a little, little thing, a little obsession called global radio, is that uh, for about the past eight months, well, more than that, one end or the other of my uh, route here via the fine public transportation system known in London as the Tube has been... Uh, in, imperiled by the fact that the, st- the stations at either end have been uh, under renovation, shall we say? They look this. No, they they look better now. But they've both reopened this week, and the great gift for waiting all this time and and enduring all the inconvenience of the uh, renovation is that as they both reopened and just suddenly they they threw open their doors. For the moment, they are both free of all visual advertising. It's like LA Airport in the eighties. There are those eighties again. But it's 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 just a little gift, a little little th- way of London saying thanks for the patience. The British are um, debating this week, according to uh, the Sunday papers, whether they should let the Chinese government, which owns I think every corporation in China, one way or the other, a Chinese consortium, if you please, buy a, a large slice of the natural gas grid in Britain. What could go wrong? It seems, you know, it seems like a perfectly legitimate idea once you start to privatize all your infrastructure. Might as well sell it to the Chinese. And, ladies and gentlemen, we are not number one. I I bring you the sad tidings that the United States, in one more area of competition worldwide, is not number one. China! They're killing us, China! China is number one. Britain is number two. The United States is number four, as you know as you've been watching, the Paralympics. It, too, is a movement. Hello, welcome to Nish... <laughs> What's the name of this thing? Hello, welcome to the show. 12 o'clock at night You walk out of door You told me, baby You were going to the drugstore But in my mind I knew you was lying Close out a quarter to nine. I said, I saw you kissing Willie across the fence. 
electric bag When I, I come home You start an argument Just to keep me from asking Where my food's and where Walk in the front door I hear the back door slam Peep out my window Somebody's taking it on a lamp But I saw you kissing Willie Across the fence I heard you telling Willie I don't have no sense The way you've been acting Is such a drag You put me in a trick bag We had a fight Then you got mad Got on the telephone Call your mom and dad They came a-running down With bats in their hands Don't you hit her no more, you understand? Well, I thought kissing Willie across the fence I heard her telling Willie I don't have no sense The way she's been acting is such a prank You done put me in a trick bag You can get me wrong But I know I'm right From London, England, number two, they're number two in the Paralympics. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He's at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. News of inspectors general, ladies and gentlemen. Three months before delivery of the Navy's First-in-class, $13 billion new aircraft carrier, the USS Gerald R. Ford. No, it didn't slip and fall. An independent review ordered by the Pentagon's top weapons buyer reveals some serious problems with the program. Quote, with the benefit of hindsight, it was clearly premature to include so many unproven technology technologies. The Navy, that's uh, the Inspector General of the Pentagon, I believe. The Navy has been looking forward to the Ford class, much better than the Chevy class, I would think. It was originally supposed to be delivered in 2014 to start replacing the old Nimitz carriers that were originally introduced way back in 1975. It, it promises several improvements, improved launching and landing gear, radars and ship design, all the way down to its nuclear core. But aircraft carriers, of course, are some of the largest and most complicated machines ever built by man. Neanderthals made jewelry, but... And the independent review suggests the program may be buckling under the weight of its own complexity. Like so much of modern life. The USS Ford, like every first-of-class ship ever built, has and will continue to face challenges, said a Navy spokesman. Commander Mike Kafka. Yes, spelled exactly the same way. 
with much the same intent. However, the capabilities resident on Ford are needed now and in the future, and the Navy will continue to work hard to get Ford completed and into the fleet, paying close attention to both new and legacy systems, unquote. Commander Kafka, who, right after he issued that statement, uh, turned into a cock... No, he didn't. The problems with the USS Ford might be a bit more serious than growing pains. The Independent Review states that the launching and landing gear have problems, and the dual-band radar has serious integration issues that need to be avoided with the next ships in the series. Unfortunately, any significant changes to the Ford class... Oh, the power plant, the nuclear core, has serious problems with the main turbine generator, according to a memo seen by Bloomberg News. What? Did you get a problem with a nuclear core? So what? It, unfortunately, any significant changes to the Ford class will have to wait for years. The Ford is already built. The USS John F. Kennedy is nearly built. Has a back problem, but aside from it, leaving any improvements available only for the third ship in the class. The Nixon? Come on, tell me it's the Nixon. As for now, what we have to do is determine whether it is best to stay the course or adjust our plans, said the Independent Review. Come on, make it the Nixon. Please. John Sopko, the Inspector General for Afghanistan, reconstruction. Well, that's been completed. Success. That's a job well done. He's released a new report this week. The first installation of a lessons learned project. His office is completing. Quote, considering that more than 2,300 Americans have died in Afghanistan, that Congress has appropriated nearly $115 billion for Afghanistan reconstruction, you could construct a new country with that. But no, he didn't say that. I'm saying that. A number that does not include the far greater costs of U.S. military operations there, he goes on. It would be an absolute dereliction of my duty not to try to extract lessons from the 15 years of struggle, he understatemented. The report documents the huge influx of American development cash that the U.S. pumped into Afghanistan. More than $20 billion in 2012, rough that, roughly that same level today. $20 billion a year. You could rebuild a country with that. The investments frequently matched and at times exceeded Afghanistan's gross domestic product, defying an international economic principle known as absorptive capacity. It says a nation-state can't appropriately absorb aid that's more than 45% of its total GDP. What happens to that excess of cash? Well, combined with what the Inspector General describes as flawed oversight and contracting practices, that cash corrupted the very government the U.S. helped to build, attracting malign officers, not benign, malign, and establishing a weak rule of law. An enmeshed system of corruption and patronage allowed this money to flow to the Taliban and other criminal networks, largely through poor customs and border control, as well as the absence of a plan to counter illicit narcotic traffic. Afghan citizens frustrated with their country's flawed governance and corruption turned to the Taliban as a source of dissent, according to the report. See, it's a system. We fight the Taliban by giving too much money to the government, which turns the people against the government and turns them to the Taliban, which means the government needs more of our money and the thing. Quote, corruption, in other words, is a corrosive acid, partly of our making, that eats away the base of every pillar of Afghan reconstruction, including security and political stability, said the former inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction. So we're dealing acid. Who knew? Man. 
That is a flashback. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this very broadcast. What's happening with our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia? The usual. More than one-third of all Saudi-led air raids on Yemen have hit civilian locations, such as school buildings, hospitals, markets, mosques, economic infrastructure. This is according to the most comprehensive survey of the war we never hear about in the United States, the war in Yemen. The findings were revealed by the British newspaper The Guardian this week. They contrast with claims by the Saudi government, backed by its U.S. and British allies, that Saudi Arabia is seeking to minimize civilian casualties. Well, you can seek without finding, can't you? Can I talk more in a high level with the thing? The survey conducted by the Yemen Data Project, a group of academics, human rights organizers, and activists, will add to mounting pressure in the U.K. on the Saudi-led coalition, according to The Guardian. Maybe in the U.S., if anybody in the U.S. was paying attention to it. The uh, coalition is facing accusations of breaking international humanitarian law, and we know how robust that is. It will refocus attention on British arms sales to Saudi Arabia, worth more than $5 billion since the air campaign began, and the role of British military personnel attached to the Saudi Command and Control Center from which air operations are being mounted. Two British parliamentary committees have called for the suspension of such arms sales until a credible and independent inquiry has been conducted. Saudi Arabia disputed the project figures, describing them as vastly exaggerated, and challenged the accuracy of the methodology, as well as the parentage of, parentage of the investigation. No, they didn't do that. They said somewhere, near, uh, say, somewhere such as a school building might have been a school a year ago, but was now being used by rebel fighters. The independent and nonpartisan survey was based on open-source data, including research on the ground, it recorded more than 8,600 air attacks between March 2015, when the campaign began, and the end of August. Where it could not be established whether a location attacked was civilian or military, the strikes were classified as unknown. Seems fair. But, you know, you got to give the benefit of the doubt, don't you? To our freedom-loving friends from Saudi Arabia now... News about Dominion. Yeah, we got it, and we're exerting it over the, uh, the Earth and its creatures. North America has more than a billion fewer birds than it did 40 years ago. The snowy owl and the chimney sniff, <laughs> swift, are just two of the better-known species in dramatic decline across the continent, according to the Toronto Globe and Mail. A report by a group called Partners in Flight concludes that urbanization, growth in agriculture, and possibly even climate change have driven the decline in North American land bird populations. That, of course, is a category that excludes ducks and other waterfowl. Those would be water birds. The total number of continental land birds stands at about 10 billion, down from 11.5 in 1970. The study was authored by a range of academic, activist, and government bodies in Canada and the U.S. They list 86 of North America's roughly 450 breeding species as vulnerable, with some populations expected to be halved in a matter of decades. Well, half the number of birds is still a lot of birds. If you like birds, 
and everybody likes birds. I don't want my grandchild to go out in the forest and not hear the songbirds in the spring, and that seems to be where we're headed right now, says Andrew Couturier, senior analyst at Bird Studies Canada and a co-author of the report. As North America's bird nursery, Canada has an added responsibility to conserve habitat, he said. A majority of the North American continent's birds are hatched in Canada before migrating south. I think we got to build another wall. Keeping forests musical is not the only reason healthy bird populations are important, he said. The creatures provide ecosystem services such as pollination and insect control, and birds are often a bellwether of broader ecological health, according to Judith Kennedy, head of the Migratory Bird Conservation Unit in Canada and a co-author of the report. She noted that sickly birds were an early warning sign of the environmental damage caused by DDT a generation ago. In some ways, the status of these birds could indicate the status of our own health. By that score, North Americans have cause for concern. Dozens of species lost more than 50% of their populations between 1970 and 2014, from Sprague's Pippet, the Oak Titmouse, and the Bobolink, to Snowy Owls. Even relatively abundant birds are dwindling in number. Chimney swifts, field sparrows, and short-eared owls are among the most common species that have lost more than half of their populations since 1970. Two groups of birds especially affected grassland species, hurt by the conversion of their habitat into farmland, and insect eaters, such as swallows and flycatchers, whose decline is less obvious but may be a result of falling insect populations related to pesticide use. It's a system. Human activity, says the report, kills billions of birds a year. Dominion! More dominion. Hawaiian crow also breeds. Hawaiian crows, a species extinct in the wild, have demonstrated a remarkable skill that's rare in the animal kingdom, the ability to use tools. The discovery, described in Nature magazine, means there are now two species of crow that are known to use tools, and there could be more. The other tool-wielding species, the new Caledonian crow, is found in the South Pacific. It's also lost there. No, it's just found there. It's famous for turning sticks into sharp pokers to probe for larvae hidden in trees. Mmm, larvae. The uh, bad news, of course, is the Hawaiian crow, known on the island as the Alaha, Alala. Sorry, There are only 109 living in two captive breeding facilities managed by the San Diego Zoo as of 2013. And uh, the, as we say, the entire species is housed in captivity. So a tool-using crow, we've managed to almost wipe off the, the planet. That's If that's not dominion, I don't know what is. And the world's best-selling insecticide, that's the birds, now for the bees, the world's best-selling insecticide may impair the ability of a queen honeybee and her subjects to maintain a healthy colony. That's the new research led by an entomologist from the University of Nebraska. The research examined the effects of... <laughs> I'm not... All right, I'll try to pronounce it. I'll try to pronounce it for your listening pleasure. Imidacloprid. Thank you. Which belongs to a popular class of insecticides known as neonicotinoids. Yes, they're based on nicotine. What could be wrong with that? You're you're hooked on you were hooked on it. Why not the bird and not why not the bees? Honeybees often become exposed to neonicotinoids in the process of pollinating crops and other plants while foraging for the nectar and pollen that feed their colonies. The queens that were fed syrup laced with that insecticide 
laid substantially fewer eggs, between one-third and two-thirds as many, depending on the dose, than queens in unexposed colonies, according to the study. Queens are particular importance because they're the only reproductive indi- individual laying eggs in the colony, says the author of the study. One queen can lay up to a 1,000 eggs a day. Bet she's tired. If her ability to lay eggs is reduced, that is a subtle effect that isn't immediately noticeable that translates to really dramatic consequences for the colony. Especially, well, it's noticeable to the bee that counts the eggs. They assessed, she and her colleagues, uh, colonies populated by honeybees. Some received normal syrup, others given syrup that contained the insecticide in varying doses. Colonies that consumed the insecticide also featured larger proportions of empty cells, the signature hexagonal hollows that serve as cribs for honeybee broods. That suggests poor brood health in the exposed colonies. And they collected and stored far less pollen, which provides crucial protein for recently hatched larvae. And the honeybee equivalent of biohazard containment, the removal of mite-infested or diseased pupae before they can infect the hive, also suffered in the hives that were dosed with a neonicotinoid. This reduction in hygienic behavior indicates that the exposed colonies could be more susceptible to pests and pathogens, which would explain why there have been suggestions that the bee die-off was due to disease. It could be that they're exposed, more exposed because their uh, hygiene is crapped up by the unicotinoids. But, you know, it's a small price to pay for dominion. News of dominion, ladies and gentlemen. It is... So very much. The copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, news from outside the bubble. The Obama administration has agreed to pay about a million dollars to the family of an Italian aid worker who was killed in a drone strike by the United States in Pakistan last year. It's the first, this is according to The Guardian, it's the first known and documented payment of its kind made by the U.S. government to the family of a drone strike victim killed outside a war zone. The uh, victim in question was being held hostage by al-Qaeda at the time of his death. His family had been led to believe a month before the strike he was close to being released. Last year, the U.S. president announced that Giovanni Laporto, the victim in, in question, and an American... Warren Weinstein had accidentally been killed in a secret counterterrorism mission and expressed his regret. The payment was confirmed by the U.S. Embassy in Rome. A spokesperson for the U.S. Embassy there said the government had confirmed that the deaths, at the time the deaths were announced, that it would be providing a condolence payment to both families. It's not clear whether the Weinstein family has also received a payment. U.S offers condolence payments to the families of civilian casualties of airstrikes in Afghanistan and Iraq. This agreement stands out because he was killed in Pakistan and because documents show U.S. was directly involved in the payment. In Yemen, a man whose nephew and brother-in-law were killed in a drone strike received a cash payment of $100,000 from a Yemeni official with no acknowledgement or apology from the U.S.,
The agreement includes this stipulation. This does not imply the consent by the United States of America to the exercise of the ju- jurisdiction of the Italian courts in disputes, if any, connected with this event. An expert on the drone program said it was the first time he'd heard of such a payment that had demonstrably come from the U.S. Treasury. It's been a common tool in Afghanistan and Iraq, not accepting responsibility, but is used to try to soothe the anger, especially saying sorry for the event and for what happened while not accepting responsibility, he said. People who study the issue said it was far from clear whether this is a shift in policy in favor of the victims and their families. An official from the human rights group Reprieve said payments were not a substitute for genuine transparency. What about opacity? Would would that work? She says, I think at this point there's no indication that this goes beyond the compensation of a Western hostage killed in a drone strike. These are the only families that have been acknowledged and apologized to by the administration. Thus far, there hasn't been a single Pakistani or Yemeni family that has received the same acknowledgement. Well, Westerners are a start. can work up to the other people. More news from outside the bubble. A U.K. parliamentary report has severely criticized the intervention by Britain and France that led to the overthrow of Libyan leader Gaddafi. That's the one where the United States led from behind. Maybe not far enough behind now, it looks like. The Foreign Affairs Committee accused then-Prime Minister David Cameron of lacking a coherent strategy for that air campaign. Well, I worked in Iraq, didn't it? Lack of a strategy? The committee said the intervention had not been informed by accurate intelligence. Well, I worked for Iraq, and it had led to the rise of the so-called Islamic State in North Africa. As you know, after Gaddafi was toppled, Libya descended into violence with rival governments and the formation of hundreds of militias. Yeah, that's a lot of militias. Well, that they did well. The committee's key conclusions include that though his decision-making in the national security, or through his decision-making, David Cameron was ultimately responsible for the failure to develop a coherent Libya strategy. The possibility that militant extremist groups would attempt to benefit from the rebellion should not have been just the preserve of hindsight. It saw no evidence the British government carried out a proper analysis of the nature of the rebellion in Libya. British strategy was founded on an erroneous set of assumptions and an incomplete understanding of the evidence. Again, that's worked so well for us. The limited intervention to protect civilians had drifted into an opportunist uh, policy of regime change, not underpinned by a a strategy to support and shape post-Qaddafi Libya. And the Parliamentary Committee said British troops should not be deployed to Libya in a training role until the government there has established political control. Well, that would render it a government, uh, as well as stabilized internal security and made a formal request for such assistance. Cameron, of course, has defended his handling of the Libya situation. The um, Foreign Affairs Committee also said the government... British government, failed to identify that the threat to civilians was overstated. It selectively took elements of Gaddafi's rhetoric threatening civilians at face value. And the government also failed to identify the militant Islamist extremist element in the rebellion. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, pretty good plan. And in the same way that we might, we Americans might look at the British looking back on their Libyan, ex- recent Libyan exploit and go, 
Well, how dumb do you have to be to do that? That just embarrasses people. Here's more of the same. According to the Times of London, the um, top lawyer at the British spy agency, MI5, is going to give evidence to an inquiry into what the British intelligence services knew about the alleged torture and rendition of terrorist suspects during the war on terror. Well, you know, what a waste of time and money to do that. You might, might learn something. The official has been invited to appear before the Intelligence and Security Committee. That amounts to a summons. This follows a revelation by the Sunday Times that a former intelligence officer was ready to tell the same committee that his agency was fully aware that detainees at Guantanamo were systematically abused and tortured. Well, it's easy for him to say that's an American prison. The source claimed that a significant number of officials, including MI5 senior management board, had several conf- confidential torture meetings during 2002. You want to come to a torture meeting? A little late. The lawyer, now asked to give evidence, would have access to the secrets and files from that time. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. In America, we know better. Our intelligence agencies destroy the evidence. News from outside the bubble, copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
From London, this is Le Show. And now, little news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. Two former executives of Rupert Murdoch's media empire have been found guilty of misleading British lawmakers when they gave evidence about phone hacking at the now-defunct tabloid, once owned by Nice Corp, News of the World. In a rare but largely symbolic move, well, symbols are good, former News of the World editor Colin Meyer and former legal manager of News International Tom Croon were found to have been in contempt of the House of Commons for making misleading statements. The committee which investigated the issue said there was not enough evidence to prove that the Nice Corp itself as a company had committed contempt. I would, I would seriously doubt that they're capable of that, wouldn't you? And more news of Nice Corp. That uh, little video clip of Hillary Clinton last week stumbling into uh, her limo that uh, introduced the uh, idea that later proved to be true that she had pneumonia was a moneymaker for Rupert Murdoch. Nice Corp owns Storyful, a company that sources and distributes user-generated video. Storyful represents Zdenek Gazda, the man who shot that footage of Hillary Clinton being helped into the limo. His video is freely available on Twitter, but Storyful has been charging news organizations that want to use the video in broadcasts thousands of dollars for usage rights. Storyful, in the last week, has been able to charge a couple hundred thousand for the rights to the clip, says its CEO. That money is split between Storyful and Gazda. So, Nice Corp makes money off Hillary Clinton stumbling into the limo. Because, you know, it's uh, unlikely to be the company's biggest video of the year, though, according to its CEO. There are viral videos of a cat or a dog doing something that are probably more valuable. Valuable. So, that puts that's that's too much perspective right there. News of Nice Corp. Uh, speaking of Hillary Clinton, she was uh, one of the people criticized by uh, former Secretary of State, Colin, her predecessor, as a matter of fact, Colin Powell. Uh, we learned that this week in a tranche, a cache, if you will, of uh, his private emails, which were hacked and then made public by an outfit called DC Leaks, which some believe is uh, related to Russia. And uh, so there's been a lot of toing and froing about whether we should even be talking about the content of those emails because there was a crime committed, you know, because he was hacked. He was hacked using that, that, you know, email account that he told Hillary Clinton he had on AOL, I believe. Man, that's legacy. Um, among he he'd uh, derided Clinton as uh, being full of hubris. He made uh, some disrespectful comments about her and even more about Donald Trump, calling him a national disgrace in uh, um, uh, emails to among, among other people, Condoleezza Rice, and. Uh, and some of his obloquy was reserved for former for former colleague, former cabinet colleague of his. Uh, when Colin Powell was Secretary of State in the Bush administration, of course, the vice president, maybe the president, was Dick Cheney. And um, 
when Dick and his daughter Liz released a book recently called Exceptional, the uh, case for American supremacy in the world or something like that. Um, Powell derided it as uh, 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 the Cheneys as a spent force, and the book would go nowhere. So uh, in private, he didn't care who he, whom he, he knocked. But uh, as I say, it became public, and now repercussions may be being felt in a subterranean dimension. Next, intimate tales of America's former underground vice president, the action-packed diary of the man who was just an enhanced heartbeat away from history. Dick Cheney, confidential, confidential, confidential. The calendar says the end of summer is just around the corner. And as the shadows start lengthening, it seems so do the knives. Lynn and I were wrapping up an idyllic few months. She in the capacious kitchen of our secure and disclosed Wyoming cabin, learning new ways to cook moose. Me, out in the woods at first light, reviewing old ways to kill moose. Have to say I was making more progress, though, than she was. To put it mildly, Moose Stroganoff is an acquired taste, and I could live quite plausibly without acquiring it. Anyway, life was being as pleasant as it could be without unfettered access to raw, unanalyzed intel. Then, I made the mistake of opening up the excuse for a newspaper they have out here. Next thing I know, I'm reading excerpts of Colin Powell's purloined emails, and pretty darn sudden, I'm testing the anxiety threshold on... Heart number two, or as I call him, Deuce. Powell always struck me as what, when I was in the Pentagon, we called the Pussyfoot Generals. Commanders who always needed one more regiment, even if the mission was nothing more purposeful than changing the oil in the tanks. But now, in the privacy of his own personal lengthening shadow, he was taking aim not just at me, but at my only heterosexual daughter, Liz. Faster than I could shoot my hunting partner in the face. That sent me back to Virginia this week on a different kind of hunting trip. The search for a certain general's backbone. Thursday, 2.17 p.m. Alma? Alma? The grandfather clock is ticking too loudly again. Alma? Funny thing about Alma... When you most need her, she's out running a purported errand cooked up by one of my naval intelligence buds. <laughs> Mr. Vice President. Titles never interested me, Coleman. Especially when they understated the nature of my power position. You have to understand, Dick, I I never had any intention or expectation that those comments would become public. <laughs> oh, of course not. That's why you used an unencrypted public Internet account. You know, I clearly wasn't born yesterday, but even if I was, I'd spit that right back up. Well, it was secure enough for my successor. She had her own server. You didn't. A private server is more easily hackable than AOL, according to my people. And hers. Listen, my friend. You and Condi were impediments to the robust implementation of American national security policy when you were in office. And you're still at it. If I were a certain 
presidential candidate whom you describe as a disgrace, but I refrain from either supporting or opposing. I might wonder if you and Candy were even born in this country. Which might be viewed by some people as possibly a racist point of view. Let me tell you something right now. Many of my closest friends, good hunting buddies that I've shot right in the face, have been African Americans. <laughs> okay, Dick. I gather that you're upset. So I called you an idiot. We're both big boys. We've both been called worse. I've been called worse by you. I think, General, you may be laboring under a little misapprehension here. I'm getting the idea you suppose I hefted my sizable hiney off a comfortable couch in Wyoming and summoned my considerable transportation and security assets to get me here in a secure, undisclosed procedure just so I could engage you in some comfortable living room debate. <laughs> you couldn't be more wrong. Huh. You couldn't be more wrong. This is the den. And that was my Desert Storm Crystal Humphy. My friend, you'd be picking pieces of something a little more serious than Crystal out of your hide if we don't see a retraction of those emails. Pretty darn pronto. Well, you're not seriously threatening me with the use of force in my own home, in my own country. See, just in case you were in any doubt, I slipped... General, you're right. You and I were big boys. We're used to the give and take of robust political combat. But you didn't just call me an idiot. You applied that sobriquet to my daughter, Liz. That was out of your lane. She wrote that piece of neoconservative foreign policy blather with you. The two of you shared a byline. It would have been sexist for me not to have called her an idiot, too. Well, score one more for you with the equal rights crowd. Unfortunately, they're not here with us this afternoon. It's just you and me and the naval non-com waiting outside with a little polonium-laced Sprite. I happen to know you like Sprite. Let's be serious, Dick. Those emails can't be retracted. They are, they're out there, wherever out there is. It'd be like unfiring a howitzer. That's the short-barreled piece. That's correct. Okay, let's assume you can't credibly retract them. You could recant them, or renounce them, or re-something them. Okay, and if I don't, polonium is traceable. Yeah, to the Russians. You were seen entering my house. By people who may not be here tomorrow. <laughs> You're not the only one with Tier 1 security. All right. Mrs. Cheney didn't raise me to be particularly obtuse. How about this? I'm listening. You've seen Liz. I have. You agree to take her to dinner in a movie. My friend the Pussyfoot General found that a plausible solution. And my friend the Naval Noncom found a place in Chesapeake Bay to dump the polonium sprite. Win-win. End of partial diary for middle of September 2016. Sincerely yours, Dick Cheney. Confidential, confidential, confidential. Baby, please be true Baby, please be true Baby, please be true My love's for all of you Baby, please be true Stay with only me Stay with only me 
Ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. So sorry. Deadline Portland, Maine. The Cumberland County Sheriff's Office has apologized for the improper release of booking photographs. It was improper because they showed two Muslim protesters with their hijabs removed. Sheriff, Ken Sheriff Kenneth Kevin Joyce said the jail officers followed the correct protocol but released the wrong photos after the women were arrested at a Black Lives Matter protest in Portland. He apologized in a statement said the department was ill-prepared for these types of arrests. Dayline Kansas City, Mayor, this is Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas City Mayor Mark Holland publicly apologized to the family of Police Captain Dave Melton for comments he made the morning after the police captain died. I would never introduce controversial comments during time of grief, and for that I'm deeply sorry, he said. The uh, widow of the police captain said she waited nearly two months to hear those words. The comment that upset many people came the morning after Melton died. Mayor Holland, who's also a pastor, spoke at a press conference and arrested violence across the nation, including, quote, the loss of innocent lives at the hands of police, unquote. Melton, the widow, said it was not the time or place for that comment. He told us when he, we met him, he wrote that statement. He rehearsed those words, she said. It wasn't like he was shooting off his cuff, unquote. The Australian Psychological Society has formally apologized to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for decades of oppressive colonial practices that have caused profound psychological scars and eroded indigenous culture. The apology was delivered by the director of the society's board, and he acknowledged that psychological researchers had exploited and inappropriately used assessment techniques and procedures that have conveyed misleading and inaccurate messages about the abilities and capacities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Those are what we outside Australia refer to as the Aborigines. The head of the uh, Australian Psychological Society, Tim Carey, 
said the treatments were developed that were both implicitly and explicitly dismissive of the importance of culture in understanding and promoting social and emotional well-being. He sincerely and formally apologized for the silence and lack of advocacy on behalf of indigenous people in the country who were subjected to such policies as the forced removal of children that led to the stolen generation and for conducting research, quote, that has benefited the careers of researchers rather than improved the lives of the participants. The first indigenous person to become a psychologist said the apology was a, quote, tremendous moment, unquote. Britain's Dateline London, Britain's Ministry of Defense has apologized for the 2003 death of an Iraqi teen who drowned after being forced into a canal by four British soldiers. Officials said the department is extremely sorry for the death of 15-year-old Ahmad Jabbar Karim Ali. He'd been taken into custody by British forces on suspicion of looting in Basra. Soldiers were tried in a British court for manslaughter and acquitted in 2006. What's been happening in the meantime? Not known. Dateline Springfield, Ohio, a Springfield Kroger employee was sent home for wearing a controversial player's jersey to work last week. Elijah Scott, 16 years old, wore a Colin Kaepernick jersey to work. was later sent home after a customer complained about the jersey. Kaepernick, in case you haven't been keeping track, is a backup quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers who sparked controversy by kneeling during the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner during a game, or before a game. He was protesting racial discrimination. Elijah Scott later posted a Snapchat video saying he was discriminated against by his employer. The store proclaims every Sunday as NFL Gear Day. Said Elijah Scott, I broke no rules. It's something you get used to, said his father. Kroger officials said they've apologized to Elijah and his family and He'll be allowed to wear the jersey in, a future, in the future. We're aware of the situation and have apologized to Elijah and his mother. Diversity, inclusion, and respect are among our company's core values and ones we strive to live up to every day. An assistant manager of the store asked Scott to change clothes after a customer complained about the jersey. Elijah's family supposedly has accepted the apology. Deadline, Coweta, Oklahoma. The superintendent of Coweta Public Schools has apologized after students build a homecoming float with a phrase considered to be racially insensitive. District leaders said it never should have happened, but the episode will be used as a teachable moment to show respect for all cultures. The float was a wagon featuring a homemade Native American hanging off the back with the words, scalp the Indians across the side. Yeah, could be considered racially insensitive. Wells Fargo Bank's chief executive has apologized to his bank's customers, saying that all levels of management feel responsible over the lender's fraud scandal that allegedly involved thousands of employees opening millions of fake or unauthorized accounts. But chief executive John Stumpf did not assign blame to specific managers and said he doesn't plan to step down. So all levels of management feel kind of responsible, but not responsible in the way you think. We are sorry. We deeply regret any situation where a customer got a product they did not request. He said, there's nothing in our culture, nothing in our vision and values that would support that. It's just the opposite. Read our mission statement. No, he didn't say that. Three regulators fined Wells Fargo $185 million over the allegations last week, after which the bank said it had fired about 5,300 employees. Stumpf told the press there was no incentive to do bad things at his bank. The uh, executive in charge of the employees at that section of the bank was allowed to retire 
and with a $124 million payday. Whether that would be clawed back in any degree, he said, that's up to the board. Facebook has apologized for censoring an activist for Black Lives Matter. Sean King, who was also a writer for the New York Daily News, was blocked from the social network after posting a screenshot of a racist email he received in which the sender harassed him using explosive profanity and twice referring to him with the N-word. King was then informed that his post had been removed from the site. The ban didn't last long. King contacted his connections at the social media company and was able to restore his access after about six hours. He received a response saying, This was a mistake. We sincerely apologize for the error. The post was removed, said Facebook, and profile suspended in error. We restored as soon as we were able to investigate. Our team processes millions of reports each week, and we sometimes get things wrong. We're very sorry about this mistake. King's post was originally removed for violating community standards, which a Facebook spokesman later said it didn't. Colombia's Marxist rebels, the FARC, have apologized for the great pain they caused by kidnapping thousands of people to fund a half a century of conflict as the insurgent group prepared to sign a peace accord with the government. It had taken captives over the years, they said in a video, but would not do so again. Apologetic rebels, ladies and gentlemen. What more could you ask? The Apologies of the Week. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And ladies and gentlemen, in case you read that TV ratings for the Olympic Games in Rio were down from London, don't cry for NBC Universal. The company managed to make a profit on the Olympics of a quarter billion dollars. Two, over 250 million in Rio, thanks to a 20% increase in ad sales volume. More commercials. That more than doubled the $120 million NBC made from the London Olympics. So there will be more Olympics, in case we were wondering. And that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next, always ending with good news, uh, returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide across Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the East Coast of North America via the shortwave giant WPCQ, The Planet. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world, via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived, whenever you want it, harryshear.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free, free, free podcast at SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, TuneIn, and WWNO.org. Speaking of podcasts, next week, next week this program will be 
a live origination with a studio audience, with an audience in attendance at the London Podcast Festival at King's Place in London. I think tickets may still be available. I don't understand why. The email address for this program, the playlist of the music heard here on, and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for you and your entire family at harryshearer.com. And me, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. Make sense? A tip of the show, Shaq Poe to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead, Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans, and Adrian Bodnam here at Global Radio in London. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from London.